Welcome to another Rising Tide Ocean podcast. Today we're going to start with what I call Davy Jones' Locker. My audio archives that include this radio report I did 20 years ago on coral bleaching in Fiji. I just went for a dive in the Somosomo Strait and talk about your coral aquariums. These Fijian reefs are littered with fish. Everything from black-tipped sharks to clownfish peering out from the tentacles of anemones. I'm sure you've seen their picture. They're the photo hogs of the reef. Unfortunately, I also saw a number of bleached and dead corals, just as I've seen on Australia's Great Barrier Reef and in the Florida Keys. 1998 saw a worldwide bleaching of coral reefs, where the living corals turn white and begin starving to death. This spring has also seen widespread bleaching here in Fiji. The State Department and other observers attribute this to warming oceans linked to climate change from the burning of fossil fuels. The reefs most at risk of dying are those close to shore, which are already being impacted by overfishing, coastal development, and runoff from farms and cities. Working to save the reefs makes sense, not only to fish voyeurs like me. It makes good economic sense. Let's do the numbers. The State Department estimates the value of coral reefs at well over a hundred billion dollars. Consider tourism. Fantastic. It's perfect weather. It's been great. Don't want to go home. (laughs) The Florida Keys generate two and a half billion dollars a year from tourism. Australia's Great Barrier Reef brings two billion to Queensland. And here in Fiji, tourism is the number one industry, generating some 250 million dollars a year. Much of that from reef divers and visitors. To see the reef from the air. Uh, so you can take helicopter rides, can't you? I would imagine that would be really good, because yeah. it was nice to see it from the air. Over 80% of life is found in the sea, including new cancer-fighting compounds derived from soft corals. That's why bioprospecting on the world's reefs has become a hot new trend. Here in Fiji, pharmaceutical giant Burrow Wellcome is helping finance reef research at the University of the South Pacific. You want to see a big splash? Big step out for me. But like the rainforest, the reefs are in danger of dying off, I should say being killed off, before we appreciate their true value. Right, in you go, Mike. I saw a sea snake today. It was kind of thrilling, and also reminded me of a new group back in Washington, funded by coal and utility companies, of course, that claims global warming will benefit more people than it harms. But if burning fossil fuels is going to kill coral reefs, then I'd rather sail to my dive sites and drive home from the dock in a hydrogen-fueled car. If you think that sounds incredible, you don't know incredible till you've seen a whale shark gliding over a living reef. On Taviuni Island, Fiji, this is David Helvard. Unfortunately, 20 years later, we failed to take the kind of dramatic action on climate change that's needed. As a result, a recent study predicts the world's tropical coral reefs could be extinct in 80 years. We've already lost 25% of them. What frustrates me is we know what the solutions are, like getting off fossil fuels and onto clean, safe, renewable energy. But that requires political will. Luckily, we still have some brave elected officials. Which brings me to my interview with Serge Dedina, the surfing mayor of the San Diego border town of Imperial Beach, California. And here I am with Serge Tadena, who is, uh, what are you, Serge? You're, you're a PhD geologist, you're a surfer, you're environmentalist who founded 
wild coast that works on both sides of the border, cleaning up pollution, saving turtles and whales. Um, oh yeah, and you're the mayor of Imperial Beach where we are right now, the last beach town before you hit the uh, Mexican border. I grew up in Imperial Beach, uh, moved here when I was age of seven, got really uh, involved in protecting the coastline really at the age of seven, my parents. When I, we got here, in 1971, and our first day, we were at, went down to the Tijuana Estuary, the south end of our beach in Imperial Beach, and I still have vivid memories of that day. I went body surfing, you know, facing the ocean, Mexico's to the south, there was this bull ring, the Coronado Islands offshore, and behind us is the Tijuana Estuary, right? Like, this amazing marsh, salt marsh, and my parents quickly, and I quickly realized that there were plans by the city of Imperial Beach to turn it into Marina del Rey, high-rise condominiums, the marina, and of course, we later learned the whole project was a giant scam. Uh, Vincent Price had actually been uh, uh, the famous actor, Hollywood actor, had been corralled to like, do promos to sell land there. And, uh, and this marina, they wanted to put a mile-long breakwater off the mouth of the Tijuana River where 15 to 20-foot waves break in the winter because there's offshore reefs. The whole thing was a giant mess. But I spent my entire childhood working with my parents and then a whole small group of, of really a handful of community conservationists, old school, bearded druids, right? Like, you know, uh, Dr. Mike McCoy is from Boulder, Colorado, and, you know, just an old, old school, kind of like John Muir. That, it's that legacy of American conservation. And so, so this really is from about, age 7 to 10, your first seven campaign? 7 to 15, you know, when we, we organized cleanups, I got beat up. We actually organized a cleanup of the Tijuana Estuary when flooding happened. And uh, the local mayor called the cops on us. It was just like old school. Wait, wait, wait. What's the relation to the cleanup and the uh, beat up? Well, who knows? We were environmentalists. We were bad, right? Like it was yeah. bad back then. And I actually, the mayor tried to block, dam up the Tijuana River when the water was polluted. And me and my buddies, two of my 15-year-old friends and I sat in front of the bulldozers and then got beat up by the mayor and his cronies and the, while the cops were watching. And this was like, so this is a lot the same different than it was today. Same time, the surfers were like protesting the same plans for Ocean Beach for the North. Right, yeah, right. And you said this whole bevy of grassroots activism on the California coast. It wasn't popular to be an environmentalist. It wasn't cool. It wasn't like groovy. It was like you were the enemy and, you know, you had to fight really hard to get what you wanted. Uh, I ended up getting a Ph.D. in, in geography and, uh, and doing my Ph.D. work in, in Texas, in Texas at Austin and doing my PhD work in Baja on gray whale conservation. So, um, you know, took all that experience in the developing world and traveling. And then my wife and I, Emily, uh, we set up in a little trailer on the shore of San Ignacio Lagoon. On our first day in the field, this guy, a local fisherman and cooperative member, came to us and said, Hey, did you know the Mitsubishi Corporation and the Mexican Salt Exporting Company are going to build a, a giant salt exporting facility on the north shore of San Ignacio Lagoon, which is a Gray Whale Birthing Lagoon, and actually a Mexican protected area, and we're like, wow, we didn't know that. And literally, uh, not too long later, got the blueprints for the project from a fisherman in his shack, this guy, Pachico Mayoral, a famous fisherman who had um, been uh, the first guy officially to ever touch a whale, pet a whale, and so really famous fisherman. And again, it's sort of the, the contrast while living in a being in a fisherman's shack with you know sand floors and then looking at the blueprints for a you know hundreds of million dollar project that was you know planned in mexico city and and, and, and tokyo right so you defeated it how'd you do that well it really it was 
we contacted the group of 100, Homero Arrigis, who's, you know, Mexico's great environmental leaders, and he's a poet and novelist, and his wife, Betty, um, when we were in grad school. And so um, they really contacted NRDC and International Fund for Animal Welfare, and then, uh, you know, the campaign started really in the late 90s, I think 90s, after 95, 96, <clears throat> and they just built this giant coalition, and, you know, Pierce Brosnan, the Hollywood actor, was involved, and... Um, but it was a brilliant campaign It, you know, involved local residents. And, you know, at the end of the day, local fishermen were against it. You know, the, the fishermen around that lagoon, especially at the north end, in a town called Punta Riojos, are arguably the most some of the world's most sustainable fishermen. They fish sustainably for lobster and abalone. So anyway, that, that made a big difference, having the whale watching, uh, you know, all the guys in the lagoon, all the families were making good money from whale watching. They were against it as well. They, they had no interest in... Uh, in, in having that project go through. So it really was a combination of international pressure, m pressure within Mexico, brilliant, a brilliant campaign at all levels. You know, this is the interesting thing about Mexico, which is an amazing place to work. All you hear is negative, negative news about Mexico, but the Mexico that I work in and love is in a country where people create miracles out of nothing. And right. San Ignacio Lagoon and the, the case of whale watching and then and the case of all the fishermen that fish sustainably are global success stories. And, and the whales are a success story in that the gray whales have come back, but also that you have this very, very bottoms up approach to distribution of whale watching permits that are only managed by local people. I, you know, a remarkable decision by the Mexican government to, to allow to make all the foreign companies work with local fishermen. It's revolutionized and, that lagoon. And these are the marine protected areas that work or bottom up, whether whether it's right. Fort Orford, Oregon, or Cabo Pulmo uh, right. in Mexico, where one of the Castros, which is the fishing family that was key to that, took me diving in cold, low visibility water. Um, suddenly we're surrounded by bull sharks with like five foot visibility. He seems cash, I'm, I'm less so. I just kind of figure if there's not something bigger and meaner than you are out there, it's not really wilderness, but it was, yeah, and, and Cabo Pulmo, you know, back in 1995, fishermen and conservationists worked together to create this national park. There was coral bleaching going on back then with all the El Nino episodes, so things were really bad at Cabo Pulmo, and the fish had pretty much abandoned the reef. And uh, there were a lot of conflicts. It wasn't really until about five years later that they, they decided to protect the, the park and ban fishing, and fishermen gave up the right of fishing, which is, again, you know, in the annals of global conservation history, which we should be writing very soon <laughs> because of climate change, um, is a remarkable decision. And, and I really admire the local fishermen and local conservationists who helped make that happen. And they gave up fishing. And 10 years later, Scripps did this research that showed that fish had come back, you know, more than 500%. And I think you've seen that anybody who's dove there, like you have, have seen the testament. It's like what Jacques Cousteau had seen when he came to the Sea of Cortez, so. Yeah, and John Steinbeck cruising through, right. it's the golden uh, cod and the, the leaping rays and the bull sharks that make me nervous. All of them are like part of this amazing. Um, but one of the tough areas was the border, of course, because that's, that's a difficult, not just today, but always a difficult environment, and you decided to uh, take your conservation vision up to your hometown. In a time of both a global pandemic and a climate emergency, Blue Frontier continues to offer hope for our blue world. 
Blue Frontier is known for leaking citizens and solutions from the seaweed or marine grassroots to top policymakers. We do this with media and citizen action, including an ocean climate action plan that will help protect the blue in our red, white, and blue. If you'd like to learn more, go to bluefrontier.org or contact us at info at bluefrontier.org. And now, back to the surfing mayor. Pollution from Tijuana has always been an issue since I was a kid, but things were so bad in the around 2004. Beach closures, um, you know, we had some horrible, horrible rains and, you know, a sewage plume, 40, 40 square mile sewage plume here. And I started, you know, people weren't really paying attention to the beach closure signs and, you know, kids were getting sick. And so I remember calling someone at the EPA and said, hey, you know, we need some help on educating these kids. And I think the response was, well, it's their fault. Like the response was, we got, we, you know, it's the response always was first, there's nothing you can do. And then number two, if the kids are getting sick, it's their fault. And so for going in with the ocean. Yeah, right. And so we put together, we got some funding from some healthcare foundations and really put together a public health campaign to start raising awareness about number one, the health impacts of sewage and number two, the need for more infrastructure on the border. So back then. We had uh, we fought a pretty heavy battle, but got Congress to allocate money for a new sewage treatment plant to capture more sewage on the border. I got elected mayor in 2014, but like it's just I think the why, last. Why did you decide to run for mayor? Uh, you know, I'd I'd been the city of Imperial Beach is a is a grassroots blue collar beach town, and it just had an administration that was uh, really working against the community to the point where they wouldn't acknowledge the pollution problem. Um, and then they tried to privatize like a local little league field and like a local skate park that kids had raised the money for. So you're going to take little league away from like fourth generation, like working class baseball families. I mean, that's like, that's like desecrating the American flag, right? Like these people were so, our, you know, our community that involved in little league softball are so amazing. And they were so hurt because they, um, they, you know, they love those fields and they love those games. And, you know, you have these families that are there. I mean, everyone knows what Little League and softball is like. And then the skate park, right, that they built this world's smallest skate park then put a giant fence around it that cost more money than the skate park. And they wanted to charge kids to use a, a skate park that Tony Hawk had given money to us to have a free skate park, right? So I ran for, you know, for premier and ran a grassroots campaign and knocked on 5,000 doors and talked to 2,000 people and beat a two-term uh, Republican anti-environmentalists who hated the beach and hated kids and hated surfers and, uh, and won by 43 votes. So you're five years into it as mayor. How's it going? This is a working class community where one in three kids live in poverty. It's a very different type of beach community than the majority of, you know, uh, upper income, you know, Southern California beach towns. And so we have a lot of challenges and we had a, a, an administration and, and ruling, you know, ruling group of folks in Imperial Beach that ignored most of our neighborhoods, especially at the east side of IB where Imperial Beach where I grew up. And so we've you know, we've paved alleys. We had lots of unpaved alleys, lots of dust, dust next to elementary schools. So we've systematically put in infrastructure throughout the city. So crosswalks and, and paving alleys and uh, putting in sidewalks. And now we're making our streets more uh, walkable and safe for biking. So kids can ride their bikes and, and walk to school. And it's great. Last time I was down here seeing, you know, the mayor collecting thousands literally up there in the watershed pulling thousands of tires into piles as they roll out of Tijuana and, and being very fair about, you know, as you say, it's, it's, we sell them the tires, but we've not like been able uh, to help create the recycling systems and the 
consciousness to not roll them down the hill back into America. The tragedy of the U.S.-Mexico border now is, you know, everything could have been prevented, you know, from not supporting dictators in Central America, obviously, that, that you know, people are fleeing poverty and oppression and violence in Central America, to the tragedy of building. Now we have a third wall. They just built a brand new border barrier uh, in areas where they're ignoring the sewage. So from the very beginning, I met the Department of Homeland Security uh, infrastructure director. He was at a meeting with the EPA Good Neighbor Committee in Imperial Beach and said, hey, if you're going to build a border fence or do something with border security, can we include water quality in that so we can, your agents don't get sick? And the response has been basically, F you. I mean, it's very clear the federal government has no interest at all in doing anything to help us. And it's not just here. It's Nogales, McAllen, Texas, Laredo. It's all across the U.S.-Mexico border. You see these horrendous infrastructure problems. And now we have all these existential threats that you're you're seeing in the Tijuana River Basin, the, the pollution, the shifting climate, the warming waters, the distorting uh, forces of, of fire and flood and intensified hurricanes. And uh, I'm always getting asked it, so what about you? Optimistic or pessimistic? You know, I'm optimistic. I, you know, I, I battle between uh, areas of opt, you know, pessimism, but then I go in the ocean and, you know, and have an amazing day. Just yesterday paddling in the ocean and it's gorgeous and you know, I see dolphins and sea lions and and more importantly, I see people interacting with each other. And, you know, it's interesting, and I think we all realize this, we watch people at the beach. People at the beach are unguardedly joyous, right? Like you see children, just no one's sort of like watching anything except just having a great time. We should bottle that magic. I mean, it's really magic at the beach. And, you know, most beaches now, I think in California, it's the great melting pot, right? It's everybody. It's families from... India and families from Mexico and you know families from Bakersfield and everyone's just having a great time at the beach and you see kids playing with each other. I love that. So people who want to fight the fear and the arrogance and actually work with our neighbors in Mexico and beyond to restore the environment, how do they get in touch with you? So I'm at wildcoast.org. You can uh, you can check out our website and uh, we work from the Oregon border all the way down to southern Mexico and uh, yeah, we'd love to have your support and for all the work we do, including. Uh, battling climate change and doing all kinds of great stuff to protect our coast. And ocean. Good. What was your last best day in the water? My last best day in the water, um, actually, you know, yesterday I had a really great day. I paddled and it was just an awesome day. I don't know. I, you know, anytime I'm in the water and it's aqua green, it's a great day, but I've had some great surf lately. Well, that was a whale of a show. Thanks to Blue Frontier, Studio Cape May, and Ocean Conservation Research for their work on Rising Tide, and to Ethan Kenvarg for our music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and spread the word. If you'd like to advertise or send comments or suggestions, you can contact Rising Tide at info at bluefront.org. That's info at bluefront.org. See you on the next tide. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Off in 
salty ocean off to the blue frontier.